um, our scripture reading today will come from Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, and chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Then the Lord spoke to Jonah a second time, get up and go to the great city of Nineveh and deliver the message I have given to you. This time, Jonah obeyed the Lord's command and went to Nineveh, a city large, so a city so large that it took three days to see it, to see it all. On the day Jonah entered the city, he shouted to the crowds, 40 days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. The people of Nineveh believed God's message, and from the greatest to the least, they declared a fast and put on burlap to show their sorrow. When the king of Nineveh heard what Jonah was saying, he stepped down from his throne and took off his royal robes. He dressed himself in burlap and sat on a heap of ashes. Then the king and his nobles sent his decree throughout the city. No one, not even the animals from your herds and flocks, may eat or drink anything at all. People and animals alike must wear garments of mourning and everyone must pray earnestly to God. They must turn from their evil ways and stop all their violence. Who can tell? Perhaps even yet God will change his mind and hold back his fierce anger from destroying us. When God saw what he had done and how they had put a, when God saw what they had done and how they had put a, a, stopped to their evil ways. He changed his mind and did not carry out the destruction he had threatened. Chapter four. This change of plans greatly upset Jonah and he became very angry. So he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I, didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? This is why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you are a merciful that you are a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. Just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. The Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry about this? Then Jonah went out to the east side of the city and made a shelter to sit under as he waited to see what would happen to the city. And the Lord arranged for a leafy plant to grow there, and soon it spread its broad leaves over Jonah's head, shading him from the sun. This eased his discomfort, and Jonah was very grateful for the plant. But God also arranged for a worm. The next morning at dawn, the worm ate through the stem of the plant so that it would wither away. And as the sun grew hot, God arranged for a scorching east wind to blow on Jonah. The sun beat down on his head until he grew faint and wished to die. Death is certainly better than living like this, he exclaimed. Then God said to Jonah, it is right for you to be angry because the plant died. Is it right for you to be angry because the plant died? Yes, Jonah retorted, even angry enough to die. Then the Lord said, you feel sorry about the plant, though you did nothing to put it there? It came quickly and died quickly. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention all the animals. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. You guys are sitting. That's good. Good morning, Christ Center Church. Good morning. My name is Josh Kim, one of the pastors here at Christ Center Church. Before we begin, out of a pastoral personal privilege, I would like to welcome back our Reverend Omari Hill and his family is visiting us out of town today. Um, I was so tempted to go up to him and say, it's your turn to preach today. But no, he's here visiting his family, so we're going to give him a break. But next time he's in town, you never know if he's going to be preaching here or not. So Pastor Omari, be prepared next time you visit out of town. Uh, please do visit with them as he's visiting out of town, as he's serving in Perimeter Church down in Atlanta. Ask him about all the stuff that he's doing and why he's not picking up my phone call lately as well. Um, we're glad you're here with us as we continue our sermon series in Minor Prophets. And today we're finishing up Jonah, the final uh, part of Jonah before we delve into other uh, prophets. But we're actually going to take a short break after Jonah and go into Advent season. Advent means coming of the Lord as we celebrate Christmas. And you could tell by walking to Walmart and Target, you see all the reds coming out, right? We also are going to prepare not only through sermon series, but also a Sunday school study that's coming as well. So uh, we'll take a short break from that. But today we're going to finish up Jonah chapter 3 and chapter 4 um, as well. Have you ever watched a movie that had a war, horrible ending that ruined the whole movie? A horrible ending that ended the horrible movie. Perhaps this is very debatable because with movies, we get really passionate, just kind of like sports, right? Some people really, really, really love particular movies, so you're very passionate about it. But perhaps for some of us, they watched the original Superman, not the many, many variations came out of that afterwards, who, at the end, who's distraught, the fact that uh, Lois Lane died, so he starts now going against, spinning against the earth. And you're wondering, why is he doing this? It just doesn't make any sense because he's not making into, into context what's going to happen to earth, the orbits, elements it can impact around it. This guy who's a hero at a time destroys the earth by doing this. Horrible ending, to say the least. One critique might argue that the original movie, or as they say, Dark Knight, Rises. The epic trilogy of Batman movie ending with the, vein, uh, the Bane, who is such a formidable foe if you remember the movie, he, but he dies so easily at the end. You're wondering why two hours of this battle for him to just die like this, right? Not to mention this hero who lives very carelessly and supposedly dies, but he's come back to life again, and you wonder why my two hours is all gone. Some who love this classic movie Titanic, right? They love the whole movie about it, but at the end, Rose, the main character, throws away the jewelry that reminds, him of, reminds her of Jack into the ocean. And some of us thought, how much is that? You throw away a nice piece of artifact, the history. Why? Now people have to go out and find it again, right? You're wondering, that's horrible. Some of us might be wondering about the 50th ending of Lord of the Rings, wondering why. Or the Avatar that doesn't seem to end anymore or the thousands and thousands of cliffhangers that come and that ruins the entire experience of our movie watching. A perfect movie only ruined by imperfect ending. When we come to the Jonah story today, it seems like, it seems like that is happening too. Like, what if Jonah just ended with chapter 3? Right? Just like as Tamika was reading that for us, it ends with chapter 3, and we're like, this is amazing. As the preachers would say, they will preach. Because now here is a nation, mind you, a wicked nation that turns around and praise the Lord. And then our message could be God could save anyone, go in peace, and we will be so happy and believe in the power of the gospel, and we go away with it. But we get chapter 4, right? As some of us chuckle through it, Jonah's saying, I, it's like, I want to die again. 
And you know, this story is so told wrongly throughout the history of Christianity because oftentimes our children don't know there's chapter 4. Oftentimes, even us, we think of the fish, how Jonah comes out, and that's it. And we often want the story to end like that, wrap it up with a nice bow to say God can't save anyone, and that's what we want. But we get a chapter 4. A prophet, not on his first try, but on the second try, still displays a sort of behavior that says, I don't want anything to do with this. And you wonder, why would God save him in the first place? Right? There's no resolution to the story, too. It's one of those things, after we read the scripture, you wonder, is it chapter 5? Like, does Jonah repent? Is there another fish that come out? Like, what's happening? He just ends with, should I not have pity, as one of some of our translations says. That's it. That's the end of Jonah chapter 4. We don't know how to end it. How do we end this story? So what's the point of all this as we journey through Jonah these past three weeks? And we wonder, as we recognize there's so much of Jonah in us, and Jonah unwillingly but definitely intentionally used by God to model who we are, the question God leaves us with at the end, should I not feel sorry or should I not pity 120,000 Ninevites is the same question that you and I should have as we leave today. Questions such as, should we not have pity as we look out into the world? Should we not have pity as we see the bombing of Gaza, the death of many both in Israel and Palestine? Should we? Should we not have pity with this political device seeing others who may think differently than us? Should we not have pity, even as our foes, those who seem to be against us, escape punishment, or even the wicked prosper and flourish? What should be our response to that? With that in mind, let's get to chapter 3 and 4. And two quick points today. First is God is sovereign to save. God is sovereign to save. And that God is sovereign to to discipline, not only to discipline, but to seek the lost. God is sovereign to save, but God is also sovereign in character, the lost. Staying with the movie theme, I love movie scenes when the main character with all the power shows up with their power to the fullest. Perhaps one of your favorite scenes for me was the, the remake of Justice League, right? When you get these four superpowers holding on to Superman to save their life, but Superman just simply says, is that it? You know, I got all the power. I could just flick you off. And here is Superman doing that. Some of us love the Marvel fans, the Thor, when he arrives at the Infinity War, and everyone's like, why were you? Why can't you have done this before? But he comes with all this power and authority where the lightning goes everywhere, all the enemies die. And you're like, this is awesome. For some of you old school superhero fans, Blade, the Wesley Snipes, when he falls into, I don't know if you guys have, it's like a small, do you guys watch that? Like it's one of my favorite movies all the time, right? He falls into this pool of blood and he slowly comes up, you're like, oh, it's about to happen. It's about to happen. And he does. Powerful enough to save the day. And that seems like what's happening in chapter 3. God shows up with his power, the mighty power to save the day. How does he do that? He does that, first of all, by speaking his word. Speaking his word. In chapter 3, it is clear where the source of the word comes from. It comes from the Lord. Chapter 3, verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Jonah a second time. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh and deliver this message I've given you. And we saw this now in chapter 1, where God spoke to Jonah to go. Now we get to season 2, 
part two of Jonah's story, where God gives same message to Jonah to go. Just in Jonah chapter 1, it says God gave the message to Jonah, son of Amittai. Chapter 3 says God spoke to Jonah a second time, saying the same message to go and speak. And this time, God is very deliberate, very clear to tell him exactly what he is told to say. And Jonah does that. In chapter 3, verse 4, Jonah goes to the city. He shouted to the uh, crowds, 40 days from now, 40 days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. 40 days from now, the Nineveh will be destroyed. There are two prevailing thoughts about the content of Jonah's sermon that caused this great revival, this turnaround that we have never, we have perhaps have not seen in a long time by the commentators. Some commentators say we get a summary version of Jonah's preaching here. Jonah said a lot of things, but this is the main message that Jonah gives. Other commentators would say, which I also tend to agree with, that these are the only words Jonah speaks, period. Because Jonah, although he's obedient to God's call, because he realizes he doesn't want to go back to the fish, right? He's like, I'm going to do what God says, but just do bare minimum. He's still filled with hatred towards Ninevites, so only decides to give bare minimum sermon, eight words in English total, only five words in Hebrew. Five words in Hebrew. But oh boy, how some of us might like our Sunday sermons to be destroyed. Can you imagine that? You show up and I say five things and amen, praise the Lord, I went to church today. I know, that's not going to happen today, but pray. Um, and here's the amazing, because I'm not Jonah, I'm not, you know. Anyway, but here's the amazing truth. This is amazing preaching of God's message that in these five simple Hebrew words was enough to deliver both the bad news of the gospel and the good news of the gospel. Or bad news of God's message and the good news of God's message. The bad news is this, and that's very simple. You will be destroyed in 40 days. Here in these words invokes one's memory of the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah, where God destroys the city in Genesis 19. It is a direct warning against sinners who continue on to say there will be complete and utter destruction that is to come your way. That is the bad news that you find in this message from Jonah. However, embedded in it is what you find the good news that Jonah gives. The word destroyed here, what we read, is more accurately translated as overthrown. So closer translation to the original language in your Bible is actually what some of your translation, the ESV has, where it says, yet 40 days and Nineveh will, shall be overthrown is more accurately translated according to the original language. Another meaning for overthrown, the first meaning is just that, destroyed, completely wiped out. The another meaning of overthrown in original language is also means change, transformed. The same word is used in other places in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, to denote change, how God changes things, especially in Deuteronomy 23, chapter, uh, chapter 23, verse 5, when God speaks of turning the curse into a blessing. The same word is used there. So another meaning of this message that Jonah gives can also mean, besides you'll be destroyed, is yet in 40 days, the city is turned around. City is turned around. How is that? How is it possible? If they respond to the message Jonah brings. That's the good news of the Jonah's message here. In church, I believe this is God's gospel to us as well. It is not simply that God loves you, God wants best for your life today, but it is also God who calls you out of darkness and sin into the light 
it carries the grave warning of impending judgment and separation to God from God that to come if you do not receive God's grace today. But it also talks about God who chases after sinners whose unmerited grace is available for those who receive it to turn around from it. Here is the greatest truth that God gives both today. Not only this is free offer of God's grace for you to receive and be transformed, but it is also warning that eternal separation that is to come. There's always two parts to God's message to come to us. Additionally, what we see in this story is it's a greatest truth that God's work in saving his people and bringing the change of the heart. You know where it begins? With simply God speaking. With God's word that's preached powerfully, the power to change and transform the city and the lives of the people, and even to command the fish to vomit out Jonah, all stems from God and God alone. And God chose to use imperfect Asian, imperfect leaders, imperfect pastors, imperfect church, but God still speaks, and God's testimony stands today. You know what that means? If I'm doing my job faithfully today, and I'm not talking about making it interesting for you or sounding funny, right? If I'm doing my job, meaning if I'm faithful to the text as God intends the message to be, it's not measured by how dynamic the sermon sounds or how funny, how engaging I may be, how long or short, although we have to work on, on our crafts to be effective communicators. I get that. But the main point is, if the message comes directly from the Scripture, as if God is speaking it, then God is speaking to you. And this is a stunning part. If a preacher is faithful to the text, then what the Scripture is indicating that is, by the power of God's Word spoken to you, your life can change. Your life can be transformed, not because of the imperfect agent that delivers it, because the Spirit of God dwells within the heart of God's people, convicts the heart, and changes the heart. And it's if a preacher speaks the Word of God, it is as if God is speaking to you. Do you believe that, church? What a powerful testimony of those who profess their faith in the Lord. Church, many of us know what it means to grow up under an imperfect pastor. You're listening to one. You've been pastored by one for a long time. We all grew under pastors, perhaps who did not even speak our own language at times, or some would say a wrong, quote-unquote, theology. But again, God, but despite the attempts to mess up by imperfect Asians, God still worked, sometimes despite the imperfection of the pastors, the leaders, to change our hearts. You know what that means? That means I have hope. I have hope that perhaps God could change our lives today. Or actually, I have conviction that God will change our hearts today. And parents, that also means you could have hope even as our children struggle to listen through a sermon. And teenagers that are sitting here, this is why we want you to listen and sit here. It's not because I am so interesting, although I may look interesting, right? It's not what I say is so life-changing per se, but what we believe is God's Word is life-changing. So it is so worth it. That's why we are sitting here. We're committing, and we want to model that for you. That's the hope that I have for my child, our children, and teenagers, all of us that are sitting here. That's the hope that we hold on to this morning. 
not only do we see the power to save through the speaking word of God, but we also see the sovereign power to save by God showing mercy to those who seek it. And that's what we see in chapter 3, verse 5 through 9, don't we? The people of Nineveh believed, the key word there, believed God's message, and from the greatest to the least, they declared a fast, put on a burlap, which is sackcloth, to show their sorrow. And the king of Nineveh, uh, Nineveh he heard the Jonah was saying, he stepped down from his throne, took off his royal robe, he dressed himself in also in burlap, and sat on the heap of ashes. Then the king and his nobles sent the decree throughout the city, not one, not even the animals from your herd and flock may eat. And then they had this greatest turnaround of their time. Not only the city, he says, but the entire, entire people. Starting from the way at the top, the king turned to repentance and turns towards God and says, perhaps God will relent. There's personal element to this, but there's also corporate element to this. The change happens. And we see two responses when God's truth is proclaimed. There is a genuine turning from people towards God. Not only they believed in God's message that he would do what he promised, but they turned and rested upon his mercy and mercy alone. And the second thing is they took off their splendid clothes as a sign and took on sackcloth, symbolic gesture of turning and desperately holding on to God's mercy. And this is God's response in chapter 3, verse 10. When God saw that they had done how they had put a stop to their evil ways, he changed his mind and did not carry out the destruction he had threatened. As they cried out, God answers. And notice what king does is exactly what God tells them to do. And this king, of all the characters, king who represented the evil ways, not Jonah, is the one who does exactly as God commands him to do. And church, this is the gospel reality that you and I must hold on to. However wicked and sinful you may think you are, or the others are, this is God's grace for us. That God is great enough to save. God is great and big enough to rescue. Jesus, who took our sins on the cross, reminds us that sin's penalty is paid for all, once and for all. Salvation has been won. It is purchased for every repentant believer in Christ. So when God sees you, he must see you. He must save you because he sees the Son of God who died when you place your faith in him. God does not turn away from those who come to him in repentance and utter dependence. Do you believe that, church? And oh, how desperately we must long for that. Hold on to that. That's what Christ central means as we gather to worship, to hold desperately onto God's grace, saying, have mercy upon me, O God, for sinner that needs God's grace. It's not only for the experience, but it's also a reality that God is at work, and that's our hope. Amen? Because we're more like Ninevites that need the word of God spoken to us. You know, people who say, I don't need the church, I don't need this Yes, there are a lot of struggles and heartaches that comes with church. But even more so that, I would say you desperately need it. You know why? You need the Word of God in your life, even through imperfect agents. And you desperately need God's mercy through imperfect agents like church in your life. So more so than things that you struggle with, what we must see first and foremost, of course we need to grow from this, is to see the need of God's Word and God's mercy upon your life. And that's what we see in chapter 3. 
But not only do we see God sovereign enough to save, but we also see God is sovereign enough to save the lost by seeking them. One of the movies that we all love is Marvel, Infinity War, and what the heart of that story is Thanos, the main villain who wants to snap a finger and wipe out half the people, right? And if you actually study into this, you recognize perhaps he got it right, right? I mean, like Earth is overpopulated. The resources are going nuts. And if you read into this story, he comes from a uh, planet where this happened. So he's thinking, oh, I have a solution for you all. Let's just eliminate half the people. And there's a lot of things wrong with it. But he gets what he wants. And we see the effect of that. The question for us to have as we get to chapter 4 is, what if Jonah got what he wanted? What he asked for? What would have happened then? And that's where we come to troubling chapter 4. On the set of the most drastic, the dramatic revival experience, and if we're at the heart of that, preaching the word of God and seeing this happen, what did Jonah's response? Anger. Hebrew word for greatly displeased or even can be translated as God saw what God did with Nineveh. What Jonah saw what God did with Nineveh as exceedingly evil in his own eyes. Key point is in his own eyes. That's what happened in chapter 4, verse 1 through 4. I'm not going to read it all for the sake of time because we read it. But it says this change of plan greatly upset Jonah. He thinks that God has done this great evil. This anger of Jonah is aimed at the beauty of God's character. It is often found in the lips of those who praise God. This is what Jonah says. This is why I ran away to Tarshish, because I knew you are a merciful and compassionate God. And if you have been going to church, if you ever read the Old Testament, merciful and compassionate God is a well-known description of who God is. This describes God's essence. In displaying who he is in Exodus chapter 34, as well as time and time again throughout Old Testament scriptures in Numbers chapter 14, 2 Chronicles 10, Nehemiah chapter 9, Psalm 86, Psalm 103, Psalm 111, 145, Joel chapter 2, you get the picture. This is who God is. At the essence of God, God is merciful and compassionate God at heart. What Jonah is angry, church, is God is being who he say he is. Have you ever been angry at God for being who he is? who he promises to be, there's a lot of Jonah in us that we like. And Jonah confesses this beautiful truth, but also shakes his fist at God and says, why would you do this to me? Why would you do this to me? And at the very essence of truth of who God is, is reveals to us who we are. Blinded by anger, who rejects the essence of God and how God wants to change us. How often we as people are wanting God to be slow to angry with us, gracious and compassionate. We look for people like that. We try to surround our people who understand us, who love us, who forgive us, who will say, come, be my friend. But when we see others acting in a certain way, then we turn around and say, why God? You should punish them. Or sometimes when we have our own sin and failing, we'll say, well, I'm just a human. This is normal desire that we all struggle with. I'm sure someone else is worse than I am. Well, at least I don't show my desire that overtly kills me. We're quick to show grace upon ourselves, but we are quick to dish out judgment upon others. When it comes to sin of others, we're less inclined to show the same kind of grace and say, 
God, won't you just punish them? Well, that person thinks differently than I do. They watch the things that I don't like to watch. Well, that person does not know. God punished them. They're evil, but we often say, God, have mercy upon me, O sinner. Oh, how often we are like Jonah. We want to be covered by grace, but we want God to punish others. That's why Jonah's ending is scary on for us. Cloaked in, even in a public God-filled ministry, Jonah is filled with bitterness that saps him away, anger, heart that takes him away from the Lord. And again and again, he seeks after the wrong things. His response does not just end in anger, doesn't it? It also goes to complaining heart. Even in the onset question, God says, Jonah, is it really rightful for you to be angry at this? You know what Jonah does? In defiance, he goes up to the hill. Even as God gently rebukes them, he probes at his hypocrisy and says, don't you not see the sin in your heart before you the sin in the others? He says, well, I'm going to see what God would do. But you know the grace of God is God is not done with Jonah yet. If God sent the fish the first time, God sends a worm um, and a plant, heat, to teach another lesson of God's grace. Chapter 4, verse 5 through 9. Then Jonah went out to the east side of the city, made a shelter to sit under as he waited to see what would happen to the city. Sitting and hoping, thinking God would punish but God arranges a worm. And next morning, at dawn, the worm ate through the stem of the plant. It withers away, it says in verse 7. And the plant dies. And Jonah says, death is certainly better than living like this. Then God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry because the plant died? Yes, Jonah retorted, even angry enough to die. With the heat, the scorching heat in the desert, mind you. It's not just like North Carolina, uh, North Carolina's heat. Scorching hot sun that causes Jonah to the point of fainting and dying. He says, I'm angry enough to die. Just kill me now. And then God sends the plant. It dies. Jonah says again the third time, I'm angry enough to die. The righteousness, self-absorption continues to grow. In contrast to what Jonah says in verse 6 when he says, I'm very grateful to the plant. You see, Jonah's heart is actually angry enough to die. Time and time again. The circumstances revealed to us our tendencies, our hearts. And God is still at work even through this way. And this is what we find the story of Jonah as we come to a close here. As God throws another, yet another object lesson his way to show God's providence of God's mercy, of how God gives good things, but it is also God who is able to take things away. Here God shows Jonah time again that he alone, he alone is God. He alone is sovereign enough to save. He alone is also sovereign enough to seek after the lost. And the final question that God asked Jonah in chapter 4, then the Lord said, you feel sorry about the plant, though you did nothing to put it there. It came quickly and died quickly, but Nineveh has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention an animal. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? It's a question that must burn within our hearts as we wrestle with this. As my good friend and mentor, Pastor Howard Brown, shared this in preaching this text, he said, whenever we think of Jonah, we thought this book is about the big fish. We think this is even 
about the cruel and unlovable Ninevites receiving this chance from God. Yes, 120,000 is a big number. But the main point of this story is about Jonah. What if God relented about bringing destruction to even 120,000 people in order to save one sinner? What if this story is about Jonah, how God shows grace to Ninevites so that Jonah can grow? And despite Jonah's angry heart, we see Jonah growing. In chapter 1, we see Jonah running away from the Lord. But in chapter 4, yes, Jonah is still work in progress. And we don't know how this will turn out. But Jonah is not running. Rather, he's sitting. Even in his anger and frustration, he prays. He lifts up his frustration to the Lord. And we see Jonah growing, and God is not done yet. God, who is sovereign enough to save, is sovereign enough to chase after Jonah. This story is about Jonah and about you and I, self-righteous, ethnocentric, self-absorbed people like you and I. God is not done yet. The grace is sufficient to save. And that's what we see. Not only does God seek Jonah out, God seeks Ninevites out, but we see the story of Jonah starts by God calling him second time, third time, fourth time, and we see that time and time again throughout the scripture. God, the same God who caused Noah to stand and build the ark. God is the same God who calls Abraham out of Ur. God comes to Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. God shows up in a burning bush to Moses. God appears to Joshua. God sends judges, prophets, kings to the nations of Israel. Ultimately, God sends Christ himself to seek out the lost. And Jesus goes to Israel, to 12 disciples, to Peter, who denies him three different times, shows himself to disciples, empowers them, and strengthens them in their faith in the Lord. Ultimately, he is sent to die on the cross so that you and I could have placed our faith in him. And as he sends to heaven, he promised to send the Spirit of God that dwells within God's people's heart so that you and I, by God's grace, can turn to the Lord. By God's grace, receive God's grace to live for him. Church, we don't know what Jonah's response is here. We don't exactly know how his story ends. Perhaps Jonah, who wrote this, as many would argue, left it off at that because he wants every single one of us to respond to what this means for us. As Jonah is a type of Christ who pictures the glimpse of Christ to come, Jonah, who spends three days in the belly of the fish for his own wickedness, but Jesus spends three days in the tomb for our wickedness. Jonah here went to the hill outside of the capital city waiting to see God's destruction and denounce God's forgiveness. Jesus also went to the hill outside of the capital city, Matthew 23, and announces forgiveness. Church, this is the message of grace. This is the gospel. In Christ, we find one who demonstrates mercy for us, who makes the mercy and grace possible by taking our place on the cross. And perhaps, church, perhaps our response must be with Apostle Paul when he says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the foremost. Of whom I'm the foremost. Even for those horrible movies, there's always end to it. 
The Marvel movies have thousand cliffhangers, but promises new story to come. The Lord of the Rings have thousand endings, but have thousand reunions to celebrate. And classic Titanic does not end with Rose just simply throwing away millions of dollars into the bottom of the ocean. It actually ends with Rose dreaming of the reunion with Jack. Also the time when there was no death and celebration happened. Church, that's our end. Dreaming of a time when you and I celebrate with the Lord. When we talk about Revelation 7, 9, multitude of nations that's to come, I think we only think about the, the nice picture of people all like us, even though they may be different ethnicities. We think about people that are like us, that agree with us. But you know what Revelation tells us? You will be surprised to see some people there. You will also maybe be surprised to not to see some people there because it is God who chooses. But we get to long for that. God is great enough to bring the multitude of people, every shade of skin color and ethnos, gathered to worship the Creator. Let's dream about that, shall we? And that's the gospel of what Jonah points to. Let's pray. Let's pray, church. Father, that's our prayer as we gather to worship the Lord, as we think about chapter 3 of the great revival of Jonah, and chapter 4 of how you are able to save even self-righteous, self-absorbed person like Jonah. That is our hope. This table represents that for us as we come. Father, may you come transform our lives. Help us to see who we are in life of you, to say Christ Jesus is our Lord and Savior. He came to die and save sinners of whom I am the worst. We thank you for the message of the gospel. Save us, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.